Hello, everyone. I'm CEO Dan Mariash. Welcome to the B'nai International Podcast. We appreciate your tuning in today. On this episode, we're bringing you a conversation that we recorded before the coronavirus pandemic hit with author Wynne Weldon. Wynne and I will speak about his biography of a 19th century Jewish sporting superstar, boxer Daniel Mendoza, who was well ahead of his time. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashen. Thank you for tuning in today. A little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Be sure to visit our website, B'nai like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play on your smartphone. I'm joined today by Wynne Weldon, the author of The Fighting Jew, the Life and Times of Daniel Mendoza, Champion Boxer. Born in 1764 and also known as Mendoza the Jew and the Star of Israel, Daniel Mendoza was a British professional boxer of Sephardic Jewish heritage. A colorful character both inside the ring and out, Mendoza was the top boxer of his era. From 1792 to 1795, Mendoza reigned as England's national boxing champion. He even wrote a book called The Art of Boxing, which endeared him to many fans of his time. In today's podcast, Wynne Weldon will discuss the life of this fascinating historic figure. Wynne is widely published. He's an author of both poetry and prose, and he hails from London, and he's talking to us today from London. Wynne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So tell me, how did you get interested in this particular subject? Well, um, it's of personal interest. Um, I married many years ago a uh, descendant of Daniel Mendoza's uncle. Um, And as soon as I knew that there was some connection between um, my wife and this uh, famous boxer, of whom I had vaguely heard, um, I became interested and um, more and more interested um, until I, uh, I decided I'd have a, a bash at a biography. I found that no uh, full-scale biography existed, um, and uh, this seemed wrong to me. So here is, uh, here is the result of that uh, curiosity. So set the stage for us. What was England's attitude toward its Jewish population during that last quarter of the 18th century? Well, actually, I'll just, I'll just a little bit of history before that. I dare say most of your listeners will know this, but nonetheless, um, the Jews had been expelled from England way back in about 1290. Um, and it was Oliver Cromwell uh, towards the end or to the, in, the, in the middle of the 17th century who invited uh, the Jews back. Um, By 1700 or so, there may have been 700, maybe 1,000 Jews in in England, mostly Sephardi. Um, As the century drew on, um, more and more Ashkenazi Jews came to England. Daniel himself, uh, as you have said, was a uh, Sephardi origin. Um, he's, I think this is his great great grandfather David, um, 
uh, had been born in Seville uh, in the 17th century, but he had married in Amsterdam and he died in London. So that uh, Daniel was very much a, a Londoner. As far as the Jews themselves are concerned, um, there were very, very few, as I say, and um, their rights were... The Catholics had it just as bad as the Jews. Uh, they couldn't vote, couldn't take a degree, to, couldn't be lawyers. Um, they this was because they couldn't take the oath of abjuration or the sacramental test. Uh, it was... Um, and they weren't allowed to uh, open uh, shops, retail businesses in the city of London. Nonetheless, uh, the Degrivianti anti-Semitism, I suppose it, uh, there were two great moments uh, in the 18th century when uh, anti-Semitism really became uh, emphasized. And one was uh, with the Jewish Naturalization Act of 1753, which actually, known as the Jew Bill, which actually really was a means of uh, uh, persuading rich uh, Sephardi Jews from Holland to uh, become British citizens. Um, but this was exaggerated, principally for political reasons. There was an election coming up and the, um, the opposition decided that uh, this was a uh, a, a good issue in which to beat the government, and the, uh, and the bill was, as a consequence, withdrawn. There was a second incident about 20 years later, which was a murder in Chelsea. And the Jews, who were known for petty crime, especially the poor Jews who had come in from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, they were known for petty crime, but not for major crimes of this sort. There was a murder in Chelsea during a, a robbery. And this caused a kind of murderous response. Um, uh, Jews were killed, not in any huge numbers, but enough to make it clear that, there, that the, this was, uh, these were expressions of, of anti-Semitism. Um, and uh, to a large extent, it was, it was Mendoza who, who, who came and, and, and put an end to that physical uh, anti-Semitism. How did he, um, how did he um, choose boxing? I mean, I can imagine that uh, with so few Jews in the in the community uh, there, and with all of the restrictions that you've just mentioned, uh, climbing a ladder, a social ladder, or an economic ladder would have been tremendously difficult. So, uh, why the the choice of uh, of boxing? How did he come to that? Well, it's very odd, uh, you know, because because he was Sephardi, uh, one would expect him to have come from um, a higher status. Uh, family and for boxing not to be terribly um, uh, attractive as, as a career. Nonetheless, uh, a boxer he was. And um, I think he describes in his own memoirs that he his family was of, of, of a middling sort. Um, and it may be that they had fallen in bad times in some way or another. Uh, nonetheless, he himself, I think, was of a um, what's the what's the right? I think he was of an argumentative disposition. On the other hand, there clearly was enough anti-Semitism for him to justify that uh, that disposition, uh, and he became a boxer um, by virtue of the fact, and but he. He would not take offence lying down. Um, he worked for 
And this is a very young man in his early teens. Uh, he worked as an apprentice uh, uh, for various trades. Um, and whenever there was any degree of offence, uh, he would he would put his fists up and he would win uh, against larger uh, larger men. And he was spotted by another boxer. Boxer is not quite the right word, gives the wrong impression. We have to remember that, that this was a prize-fighting era of, uh, of bare-knuckle boxing. So there were, there, it was fighting, really, rather than what we understand as boxing. How did his success impact the Jewish community? Was, was all of it positive? I mean, obviously, he built up a reputation. Um, was it uh, analogous to the way that the reputations and talents of sports figures today impact their communities? I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, we had um, uh, Jewish boxing champions here in the United States, uh, Barney Ross, Benny Leonard, and others. Uh, even though many Jews didn't go to fights or didn't follow um, uh, prize fights, uh, they knew about these figures and they were quite proud of them. How, how did, it, uh, did it work in the Jewish community in London at that time? Absolutely. I think that uh, pride is the first um, uh, is the first prize, as it were, um, after his his first great victory was against a, uh, a fighter called Martin from um, uh, from Bath. He was called the Bath Butcher. And this fight had been arranged by uh, none other than the Prince of Wales. So it was a big deal. And um, and Mendoza won the fight. And he was taken back to London, more or less on the shoulders of his fans. I mean, he came back. Um, it must have been one of the greatest moments in Anglo-Jewish history, uh, quite honestly. I, I can't, I, it's difficult to imagine um, I can't, anything before that being quite as... Uh, um, uh, as, as, as emphatically prideful. He, 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 not only had he won this fight, he'd been paid by, he'd been paid by the Prince of Wales, by royalty. He'd been recognised by, by royalty. Um, uh, and my, you asked for an analogy, I suppose, uh, it, it's not quite right, but I suppose, um, you know, Jesse Owens, um, uh, uh, those Nazi Olympics or, or, or Muhammad Ali. The, these are the analogies that I would I would draw, really. Now, you um, document uh, Mendoza's checkered life outside the ring. Um, and you've demonstrated uh, that he was often his own worst enemy. Was he ever able to get past his own proclivity to to brutality and violence that uh, he uh, exhibited um, in his boxing matches? I don't honestly think that he was. Um, uh, you know, he, 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 fought his, uh, he fought his last fight when he was 55 years old, which suggests that he, you know, never really gave it up. Um, it's difficult, you know, it, 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 it's very hard to know exactly what he was like as a person. There, there is his... His, there are his own memoirs, um, which suggest colour and a certain kind of sardonic approach. Um, but it's hard to tell. And these stories that he doesn't include, um, like the, the, the beating of, 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 of servants and, and so on and so forth, um, they do kind of suggest that he was more brutal than the, 
there's a kind of popular image of of Mendoza as a great Jewish hero, and uh, and they they slightly <laughs> undercut that that notion. Um, I don't think he, and he certainly wasn't a very good father. Um, you know, his uh, three or four of his children were um, transported to Australia, so. That doesn't suggest a great example in any way. Um, so I don't think he got over that. Um, at the same time, it was a brutal age. Um, everyone was fairly brutal. Um, and I think I get the impression that he was popular. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Despite his, despite his criminal pursuits and his time in jail, uh, he was still lauded by all, including King George. Uh, was, was he ever presented at court? Uh, it wasn't presented as such. Um, his famous meeting with uh, with with King George, uh, America's favourite king, I guess, um, was uh, was accidental, uh, and we have only his account of it. Um, he was uh, recuperating in in Windsor, uh, in strolling in the Great Park, and he was called over. Uh, by the king, uh, who was also strolling there with his retinue, and they spoke for half an hour or so, um, and um, it was clearly a chat rather than uh, what is the word? It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a presentation. It was actually a chat, and I think that uh, I think Mendoza wasn't phased uh, by anybody very much. I think he was pleased to be able to to chat with George, who apparently knew a certain amount about boxing. And of course, the Prince of Wales also was a, it was really the Prince of Wales who, 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 who reintroduced uh, uh, boxing as a, a, as a fashionable uh, pursuit. So, um, Well, he was, uh, Mendoza was, was credited with being the father of scientific boxing, such as it was at the end of the 18th century. Uh, and he's credited with the book, The Art of Boxing. Uh, revealing uh, the ways in which he triumphed over much larger and stronger uh, opponents. Did, did this technique uh, or what he wrote about in The Art of Boxing have lasting effects on boxing uh, as we know it today? Well, I think as we know it today is, is a bit of a stretch. But um, I, I always say that what Mendoza introduced was the notion of a ducking and diving, of, of getting out of the way of a punch. Prior to Daniel Mendoza, um, uh, you know, swore the, the wide-built Englishman would stand in a, uh, you know, within a within a uh, a circle, um, uh, knocking the bells out, seven bells out of each other, until one of them uh, fell over and uh, didn't get up. Um, Mendoza almost invented defensive boxing, and. Um, uh, if you read the art of boxing, you'll see almost everything is in response. So a, a punch is thrown and you move out of the way of that punch and then respond uh, because the other person is off balance. Um, and uh, it sounds unbelievably simple, but uh, these were revolutionary notions. Right, came to be known uh, as bobbing bobbing and weaving. So I guess he... Yes, bobbing and weaving. He introduced exactly. bobbing and weaving. Well, that would be, um, that would be a major contribution to boxing even, even today. <laughs> yes, exactly. there's, a, there's a huge <laughs> cast of characters in your book. Some are Jewish, some are not. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, his friends and also his enemies. Who, who did he... 
Who did he travel with? What was his circle like? Well, um, it's it's very hard to to give an answer to that. I mean, he he uh, clearly most of his friends um, were boxers. Um, those are the people with him he uh, hung out, as far as I can gather. Um, he. But, but he fell out with people very easily. So Richard Humphreys, with whom he had a very famous series of fights uh, in his early career and really made his, made his name, initially was a, a close friend. Indeed, he was a mentor. Um, they fell out. It's not clear quite why or how. Um, another boxer called Henry Lee, with whom, um, uh, with whom Mendoza had... Um, uh, sparred in his early days. They fell out years and years later. Um, he fought him as well, beat him as well. He very much liked the company of aristocrats. And aristocrats were very important for uh, prize fighting in those days because basically boxing was a, a form of gambling, as a way of gambling by these aristocrats who used to lavish vast amounts of money on on fights and on horse racing and so on and so forth. Um, and he, uh, Mendoza hung out with these chaps um, uh, and almost certainly spent almost everything he won um, also gambling and trying to keep up with, as it might be, the Duke of Hamilton, who was a particular friend. Um, you know, Pierce Egan, who was the great journalist of, uh, uh, and recorder of, of, of prize fighting, um, called Daniel um, an intelligent and communicative man. And that does suggest that he was a, a, a social animal. But enemies as such, there were one or two fighters. Uh, William Ward didn't like him. He didn't like William Ward. He, William Ward was a person who he defeated to become champion. There was a chap called Gentleman John Jackson who ended uh, Mendoza's career as champion um, and became what was known as the commander-in-chief of British boxing. Um, he didn't much like Mendoza either. Um, that's for reasons I could go into. But uh, how did it um, how did it work uh, when um, the the build up to a to a fight to an important fight? Um, how did people know about? Were there posters that were that were put up? Uh, was there admission? Uh, were there um, known uh, boxing rings? Uh, you know, a, an 18th century version of Madison Square Garden. Let's say how did, how did it work? <laughs> Well, there were some. There were. It's quite difficult to um, answer that precisely, um, because boxing, although itself not actually illegal, um, was not particularly popular for uh, for moral reasons. Nor was it looked on uh, by uh, the law as particularly, but especially with the French Revolution. Um, the idea of gatherings of large people was not attractive to the authorities. And so it depended on uh, local magistrates as to whether they would um, uh, accept or allow uh, boxing fights. There were certain places like Barnet, for instance, uh, Barnet Racecourse, where a lot of the fights took place. And, and those were kind of accepted places. But that wasn't necessarily the case. So sometimes... Um, 
it had to all it had to be whispered um uh, fights had to be moved about the place and uh, sometimes they were secret and um, sometimes they didn't want large crowds. Uh, for instance, I think in Mendoza's third fight against Humphrey, they went as far north uh, as a place called Doncaster um, in order to get away from the crowds from London. It didn't work, but th that was the idea. Um, so it wasn't straightforward. There was no Madison Square Gardens. There were, however, theatres, and one of the things, one of the one of the ways in which Mendoza earned his money was by exhibitions uh, and sparring. And these were um, these took part took place in in theatres um, up and down the country, uh, and that was fine. Um, uh, that would be usually in between the acts of a play or. Uh, there were variety shows in which there might be some some boxing, some sparring. Um, what do we? That's uh, really the answer to the question. Yeah. What no, do we? What do we know about Mendoza, the person, his personal life? And you mentioned there were children uh, who were sent to Australia. Uh, and what do we know about him as a Jew? And and how do we know that? Well. Um, we know that he, well, you said at the beginning that he was born in 1764, but in fact, the records of Bevis Mark, the uh, Sephardi synagogue in London, give the 1765, and I'm, I'm inclined to believe <laughs> Bevis Mark before Daniel. Um, his dates are always all over the place. Um, so his grandfather was, you'll have to forgive my pronunciation, was was very likely the Shochet. Is that correct? Shochet. Shochet, Shochet, uh, sure. Yes, the, the ritual slaughterer for the uh, Sephardi community in London. Um, we know that he went to Hebrew school because, again, he says it, and he was quite clearly proud of the amount of Hebrew he learned. He wasn't... He's interesting also because he was a secular Jew. He was one of... He was, he was a... It's almost impossible to imagine Daniel Mendoza on the continent. It's a very English uh, phenomenon, I think. Um, he was acculturated in a way which, which didn't happen uh, on the continent. Uh, and um, so although he was proud uh, of his Jewishness, I mean, his first fight, for instance, was on the Sabbath, and he's slightly apologetic in his memoirs, but only slightly apologetic. So it, it, I think on the whole, it would be fair to describe him as a, as a, as a secularized Jew. And his, um, and his family life? There is very, very little information um, about his family, uh, certainly from uh, his point of view. Uh, we know that he promised his wife over and Esther, um, who was actually also his cousin, um, uh, he promised her uh, to give up boxing over and over again throughout his life. Uh, he never did, um, uh, as we've as we've seen. I, I really wouldn't want to hazard too much of a guess as to how uh, orthodox or not he was in 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 family life. There's there's very there's there's no information as such. Mm. Uh, just to go back to the boxing for a second, uh, with an increased um, brutality in those days, which you've already referenced, um, Mendoza must have been injured many times. Were any of those injuries permanent? You said he was boxing until the age of 55, so 
it couldn't have been that permanent. Uh, but in 55, I, I would think at the end of the 18th century was probably equivalent to, I don't know, 75 or 80 today. Um, but was he injured badly at any point to the, to the point where he had to stop boxing, at least for a period? Um, after his first bout with Richard Humphreys, um, a famous fight, uh, which he was, although he lost, um, uh, he, he still covered himself in glory. But as, an, as a consequence, um, it seems that he may have lacerated a, a kidney. And, and um, but we, we don't know exactly, but he was out for a long time, um, about 18 months, um, while Humphreys was trying to get a return uh, fight. Well, he was trying to get a return. He promised a return fight, but he couldn't fight. That was the only time, as far as I can gather, that he had a serious injury. He lived longer than almost all his contemporaries. Um, I mean, very markedly so. I mean, he was the he was one of the first of this golden age of prize fighting and he was almost the last to die. Um, so he died in 1836 and, uh, you know, he, it was a long life. Um, so I, I think he was, I think he could be said to have been lucky. On the other hand, it's also important to bear in mind that um, it is said that bare knuckle, this is, it's said that bare knuckle uh, boxing is less dangerous in the long run than gloved boxing. Gloves were introduced to protect the knuckles, not to protect the opponent. Um, and um, uh, so the wounds that you got as a prize fighter, as a bare knuckle fighter, um, they looked bad. There was a lot of blood, but it was all, as it were, exterior. There were the, the, the kidney uh, injury was quite rare um, and internal injuries were rare, were rare, whereas with box with boxing gloves, there are more internal injuries. So it's six of one on half dozen of the other. Either you have, you know, brain damage or internal bleeding. You have to decide which. Um, well, what did what did Mendoza do after the, his career was over? He lived, you say, in, really until old age. Uh, we would even consider it to be old age uh, today in the 21st century. And how long did his reputation last uh, after that? Well, uh, throughout his after after losing the title, as it were, in 1795, he only really fought uh, twice again professionally. Um, he made the money teaching. Uh, he was an excellent teacher and very highly regarded as a teacher and, as I said before, exhibiting uh, in theatres up and down the country. Um, but he was a very, I mean, he tried, he tried other means of making money, which uh, were uh, failures. He, he, he was not a very good shopkeeper. Um, he was a very bad uh, recruiting officer for a Scottish regiment. He was not a very good sheriff's officer. Uh, he was a very poor landlord of a pub called the Lord Nelson. All these ventures ended in, in failure. Um, and he was always drawn back to the ring and to the, uh, 
uh, to that world in one way or another. Um, as I say, he was he was known as a teacher, but clearly as the years went on, his uh, he he became less and less popular as such. He got ill, um, and uh, he ended his days in 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 poverty, blind and and in poverty. But uh, having said that, um, he's he's a, he he remained a famous name. Mendoza remained a famous name for a long time, and I think you know as as late as. 1934, he was getting a name check in 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 movies and so on. So the name clearly still had resonance. It was, I think, only with the advent of of, of film and television and so on, and photography, I suppose, um, that other stars came along. But before that, Mendoza, I think it had something to do with his name. It may have had to do with the the fact that he was a colourful character, uh, he, he was famous um, uh, for a long, long time. Was um, there a uh, was was there ever a movie made about uh, his life? No, no, no. It's very annoying. Well, you have to you <laughs> have, have to do that. Plays. There have been plays and there have been suggestions of movies. And uh, if you look on on YouTube, you'll find tiny little scenes of uh, uh, proposed movies, but the, um, so far, no. Um, it's, it's something I'm talking to people about, but um, we, we, will, we will see one day. I mean, it's a terrific story, and um, uh, if, if told right. And, well, maybe, uh, maybe you'll, do the, uh, you'll do the screenplay. Um, well, that would... <laughs> well that's, that's, that, that could be next. It could be next. Um, well, exactly. Well, Wynn, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, the book is The Fighting Jew, The Life and Times of Daniel Mendoza, Champion Boxer. Uh, the author is Wynn Weldon. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benebrit.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about it. For my guest, Wynn Weldon, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. <laughs>